What does it take to become an elite 40k player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40k Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Welcome back to the Art of War Unbroken. This is part two of the episode, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, go check it out. We're joined once again by Brad Chester, Mr. Brown Magic, Nick Nanavati. If you don't know who these two are, you have been living underneath a rock for the last decade. They have won pretty much every major event. They've been relevant on the global scale. They're part of Team USA. Absolute powerhouses in the game. So um, I guess Google them if you do not know who they are. I, you'll find I, some I, valuable information. how long I've been playing this stuff. I'm currently, while we're recording, wearing my 1997 Gen Con shirt. I was four years old when that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so if you recall in the previous episode, we talked about the tales of woes of of uh, Nick facing Mark Hurdle's Admech army, a real wall, as you would call it, what we call barrage of firepower, uh, this mechanical mayhem, if you will. We discussed what he did and why he believes he lost. And now we're going to deep dive into the nitty gritty of what he took away from the event. We're going to talk about his list. We're going to talk about list adjustments. We're going to talk about strategies moving forward. Brad, what are your thoughts on Nick's list? Well, I like the list a lot. I want to get into the the whys, the hows, and the wheres, and the how he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and what he's going to do to never do that ever again. Basically just learning. And that's the whole point of the podcast. We basically learned a little bit in that first. And I want to go into some real specifics right now to help everybody out and make sure that everybody's learning from this podcast and going forward, they get a little bit, hopefully everybody gets a little bit every time we do a, one of these casts. For sure. For sure. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful time talking about how I'm not great at 40K. You gotta love it. <laughs> no, Nick, we're saying how you are great at 40K because you learn from each and every uh, loss. That is what makes you better, I will say. Learning from your losses is how you become great. So I, was say, I just inflated your ego like big time there. Yeah. What do you say? I said I just inflated your ego big time there. I feel like I feel like it's not so much of that of that, you know? Mm. Well, I here's my thing. Once once we inflated your ego, now I gotta call you out a little bit on it because I want to go, why didn't you make a couple moves? May or may not be better. Well, let's, let's get into it. Rip me apart. Can you just break down your list real fast for the listeners who maybe forgot from part one? Just give us a brief, brief recap of what was in your list. Sure thing. So it was my pretty standard Dark Elder build up and using it for like the past month and a half. Um, it's got the triple rack of fires and Drazar in the Dark Tech Node attachment. Every Dark Elder player runs one of those, apparently. Um, then you got the Super Broken Rays of Flail Succubus, two units of five witches and a unit of eight witches with Morvane's Agonizer. They make up the Cult of Strike detachment. And then I have a Black Art detachment with uh, six raiders, two units of five Incubi, unit of five Mandrakes, um, two Archons. One of which is uh, the Super Combat Archon with the Gen Blade and Hatred Eternal for Reroll Sits, Reroll's Wounds. He's the Master Archon, so he can fight twice. The other one's a bit of a Utility Archon. He's got the Helm of Spite to deny a Witch, and he's got Ancient Evil to make people fight last. Um, for troops in there, I have two units of five Warriors with Blasters, and then a unit of ten Trueborn with a, a Dark Lance and two Blasters. So a lot of solid firepower and more OPSEC. And then finally, to add the Nick Flair, I have the Slits and Urgles, my favorite unit. It's two quarts of the Archon. Uh, each unit has four Slits and four Urgles. So these are just like really strange, useful units I like. I like it. I mean, I like your list a lot. I felt that it really countered 
I thought you took a lot of plan into that and really countering the meta itself as far as uh, other players that were playing uh, Dark Elder possibly also. I think that they weren't ready for those two courts of the Archon, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I would say the courts were the MVPs of the tournament, like by far. Like, don't get me wrong, Blickifiers and Racks are really good. Raiders are your bread and butter. But as far as the tech choice I made, which was like courts of the Archon instead of Hellions or some other variation, um, I was so happy with the courts. It's it's what they do for my army is that they they can be a multi-tool. They're a giant multi-tool. They are bodyguards, so my archons can hold objectives in the open really effectively, and I can just body block for people. There's something durable that Dark Elder doesn't have. Like I can put four slits and four urgles just out there and they should survive against most things. There's a lot of tricks you can do with them. Of course, you can lightning fast them for minus one to hit. The slits have five up armor which doesn't sound impressive, but then if you put them into cover of any sort of light cover, like a crater or a ruin, they'll get, they can use a strat for plus two cover saves. So then they have three up armor, and if your opponent wants to throw like just mass shots into these slits, like heavy stubbers and mass or something to try to whittle them down that way, three up goes a long way to stopping that dead in its tracks. Um, they get power from pain a turn earlier, so they can advance and charge turn one. Nothing else in your army can do that. They can... Uh, they get to five up, five up, five up intervals, five up pain, pain on turn three, which is like early enough that it's actually relevant. And then also they are my Wowie stance. So in games, this is all one of the big reasons. In, in the hard games and the hard missions, the, the mission secondary sucks. You're playing against like Dark Angels and, you know, they're not going to give up any secondaries and they're going to score 100 points unless you can do something about it. This is doing something about it. You can score Wowie stands yourself in an army that otherwise can't. What do what are you throwing these guys? I know you're not throwing them willy nilly because they're your why you stand, but what are these guys good at killing? Oh, so much. Um, so the, the offense on the unit is is interesting. They have a bucket of attacks. Uh, each slith has three. Each ergle has four. On the charge, ergles have six. So it is thirty six attacks at a variety of strength five slash strength four, AP one slash AP two. Just a bucket of attacks. They're hitting on twos on turn one or turn two because of power from pain. Also, give me plus one to hit, so that helps. Um, so it's not smashing stuff. They, they just have lots of attacks with decent AP, so they can drag down characters really effectively that have like a three bomber four pinville. Just take a lot of saves in your four pinville. They'll drag down tanks over time because it's just like take ten saves at AP minus one or two over time. Right. Um, they have a little bit of poison shooting, which doesn't sound too impressive, but uh, having the Trueborn with the Splinter Axe for poison shooting from the Raider, and then the 24 shots between my two Slits and Urgle parties. That's, I, have, I pump out like 40 poison shots a turn. That's not insignificant no, that's not against the monsters. That helps a lot against like Keepers and Mortarians. Um, they're just really useful. I don't love making them the Wowie stands because I actually really enjoy using them. They're great smite catchers versus chaos lists. They're great for tying stuff up where otherwise you wouldn't be able to in Dark Eldar because stuff just dies in Dark Eldar. Um, but doing this means you, you're you going to lose them, so you don't really want to make them while we stand. So I use them as a while we stand when I need to, and then I take them as a unit most of the time, or at least half the time. <laughs> that actually leads me into my first question, sir. Seeing that we didn't take them as a while we stand in this match, did you think there was any opportunities to, especially in a game like this where your characters aren't as important as basically just kind of shutting down the shooting phase as much as humanly possible. Did you think there was any uh, chances that you could have been a little more aggressive early with one of the courts to get some of your characters, maybe on solo missions to grab things, especially with the ability to pop a CP on 
<clears throat> the cold of spite so that you don't get overwatched and grab some of these vehicles might be doing some early chicken damage and stuff like that i whether or not they're evolving thin i don't actually think is a really interesting thing um we can talk about that a bit but to answer your question i don't think being aggressive with this list would have been the key to this match maybe if i had gone first that would have been a much better use for them but the way mark played um, getting aggressive with slits early is is really hard because they they turn on on turn three. That's when they're like we're awesome. So you the earliest you can use them is top of three or bottom of two, depending on who's gone first. You can use them on your bottom of two because then on your top of three they'll have five up five. Your opponent's top of three they'll have five. For sure, five up. I, I was more looking for anyway between the 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 court of the archon or maybe an aggressive raider push with uh, possibly the racks inside, just because of the fact they're a little more durable in that, uh, going behind those middle pieces of terrain just to get yourself a possible slingshot or yeah. to lure your opponent out and try to make him commit some more resources because he was playing you very cagey uh, most of the game, it seemed, uh, just looking for an opportunity to basically harass and grab stuff. I mean, if you get one of the characters into his you know his mid like basically the first layer of his backfield it can really free up a lot a turn or so for your the rest of your army so that's a really great point let's talk about that so conceptually i've, I've done what you're saying a million times and I, I love it just to to reiterate for everybody basically mark went aggro at me uh turn one he put that plane in my face he put these tanks in midfield and uh, aggro control not just all, all in trying to kill me and from there he dictated my target priority which i let him do a little bit which maybe to my detriment i killed the plane i killed the ponies i killed this frontline stuff that was really really being a thorn in my side on turn one um but i didn't make any aggressive push also i just answered the problems he put in my face so what brad's kind of getting and correct me if i'm wrong brad is basically answer those things because you gotta but then also be aggressive so that you're not just answering, you're also asking questions of Mark, right? Hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. So that would have been. I think that is the approach to like when someone pushes you in the corner uh, on turn one, and you're like, "I don't want to be here. Let me get out of the corner as quickly as possible to get some momentum back on your side." Definitely kill everything you can, but then also launch something onto their side of the board, even suicidally, just to make them have to deal with that the same way they dealt with you, so that you can kind of dictate where they get to shoot and kind of force it. Yeah, in hindsight, I don't know how I would have done it. Like reviewing the game in my head is like there there was a it was very well positioned on Mark's side to not let me just charge him or, or capitalize on his movement errors. And if I tried to get aggressive, he could have punished me pretty hard. But I think conceptually, yeah, like being able to answer that plane in the dogs while throwing something in front of his face to get more aggressive, that would have been the response. Yeah, just for me, when I was just looking at it and uh, listening to you after you talk about it, it was just one of those things where I'd always felt like you were answering uh, as opposed to dictating and that can just be an issue sometimes, you know what I yeah. mean? Just basically always playing in your back foot, even if you're really pushing forward with the game, sometimes just leads you into situations that you don't want to be in. And I would rather always be putting my will, I call it, you know, it's very arrogant on that, but I try to enforce my will on my opponent. Basically make your opponent play under duress as opposed to letting them calmly initiate their game plan. No, I, I, com I completely agree. Sorry, go ahead, Blake. Would there have been some like choices you could have you would think about putting into your list that would have let you kind of do that cheaper and maybe like um, I don't know maybe play into that a little bit more like some maybe some tech choices in the list? Absolutely. So one of the one of the things I've been looking at to kind of help a problem I didn't know I had until I played this event was 
a lot of times I really wanted to take a Raider and move it 22 inches at my opponent with enhanced ether sails and then just charge vehicles and just shut up vehicles. Plaguebirth crawlers were a big problem for my army because they would just keep shooting me and I would just, they would go unanswered if they're in the backfield. Um, and I kept wanting, I kept looking and trying to actively create things. Uh, same with the Scorpius Disintegrators in this match, where I could take a Raider and fly it across the board and shut these guns up. And through very clever positioning towards my later round opponents, my round six, my round seven, you know, the people who know what they're doing with these really good gun line or standoffish type units, they don't, they, they can see that the Raider is quite massive. It's like very long, it's got spikes everywhere. And then 22 inches is so far with fly, but you can move block it enough. And we taught strategy sessions and stuff in the war about how you move block fly things, not to prevent it from moving anywhere, but prevent it from moving in the spot where it can then land and charge play crawlers. It would have to be halfway through a wall or within an inch of an enemy unit. We talked about that in part one. So the tech choice, I think, is a unit of anywhere between three and like five reaver jet bikes, something like that. A couple units of those, even just one unit of those. Um, they can be useful because they move 28 inches or even up to 32 if you give them the move drugs or roll them. Um, 28 inches minimum. Much smaller, easier maneuver footprint because they can bend. It's five models and reavers is, can probably stretch out further than a raider, but can also condense much smaller than a raider. It can coherency, so it's not always just a jagged line or a straight line. It's going um, to be a lot more flexible with that. They can ignore Overwatch. I could always make a raider uh, cult of strife to help it ignore Overwatch. Um, but against things like um, Admech with full blitz to skill Overwatch, turning that off can be really helpful. And if a Raider can't do that, then I'm just going to not be able to charge chickens or something. So there's a, there's a lot of play to those Reavers that I'm now looking at that I hadn't before. I, can, I, like that, I like that idea a lot. And the thing is, is what I like, one of my favorite things coming back from a tournament is this mentality right here that we get in. And that's why it's, it's not like I any of us want to lose games, but when we do lose a game, it makes you start to question. And the questioning is always good as far as what would be better? What, what do we have more, more and different answers that could possibly be better? Do I have a more efficient way to do this than I was doing before? I like, I like that reaver, that reaver jet bike tech piece too. Cause it gives you a lot of other, you know, it gives you a cheap unit or a cheapish unit that can go out and do what Dark Eldar loves to do as well. Even if it's not going in harassing backboard, you know, it can, it, it's it's an engaged piece, you know, or it's like a contest piece. And it's, I think it's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I think the more you play an army and the more you try to troubleshoot these problems, the better you get at finding these small little solutions, these band-aids to put on your problems that cover them up properly. Um, you can take mathematically better and more efficient stuff. I could just take tons of liquefier racks. That's an option. But that's not an elegant solution to the very specific problem I'm having. That's just a brute force solution that can get through it in one specific way. So I think instead of taking my list and starting it over and just you know putting more math in to handle the games I lose, take the list, keep the concept. It clearly works. 7-1 is awesome. John won the whole tournament with it. Um, and let's... And refine. Well, let's Focus talk, on the well, let's talk about that. What, what would you consider to be the very core of your list? Like, what are the things that are just in no matter what? When you're, you're like, hey, I want to work this in. I want to work in Reavers. I want to work in 27 Slits. Just, you know, whatever you're looking at. But what is the actual core? What is not coming out? So I, I look at the list in packages. And 
and that's kind of how it's designed. So the first package is and not in any particular order, but like the slits and ergols and the quartz and the archons, they're a giant package. I don't think it's really worth it to run one slith and ergol thing. It might be, but I really enjoyed having double for just flexibility and options. Um, and each one comes with an archon. So that's a whole thing. And then I really enjoyed having the super succubus. So that means I'm taking witches and a witch attachment. So then I have to take, if I'm taking witches, then you know that's one of my attachments is a witch attachment. I could sneak her into uh, a mixed attachment because apparently that's allowed. But then I'm not getting <laughs> cultists. Uh, I'm not getting cultist strife straps, right? So I'm not getting reroll to wound. I'm not getting ignore overwatch. And I used ignore overwatch almost every game. Like I'm not eager beaver to let that thing out of my army, especially as every dark elder player on earth is spamming liquefiers. You know what's really good against liquefiers? Ignoring their overwatch. Overwatch, so huge. I I don't think I can make myself not play with at least one cult strife patrol right now. Right. So then, then you know, I could not take my liquefiers or I could take my liquefiers. That's just a choice. They're, I think they're good enough that you should just bring them. They're such a versatile weapon. They're more on obsec. They're easy to get. You could take them out of my army. I could replace it, I think, with more cabals and I would have a similar type of effectiveness. But I think for tool diversity, having liquefiers is really important. So it, it builds itself, right? Like I want a witch attachment. I want a liquefier attachment. Those are going to go inside raiders because raiders are just points efficient, like one of the most tanks, effective tanks in the game right now. Um, so that's where it all began. It's just witches and raiders, racks and raiders. And then it's like, how do I finish this? Well, I could use something that um, I could use Hellions. I could use Slits and Urgles. I could use Mass Incubi. I could use 27 Reapers. You can go all over the board with it from here. Ravagers, Trueborn. Um, I went with this version with the Slits and the Urgles and the more troops because I found nine troops was just awesome. Every game, I loved having nine troops. Dark Elder loved throwing OPSEC all over the table, loved playing the mission. Fine Fades is a great rule. Um, so I liked having nine troops. I mean, I think that's the core. Nine troop squads. You could go to eight. You could go to seven. Do you think I, that it, double double Urgle or sorry, double core to the Archons is your part of your core? Or I don't think it's part of the core. I think that's the tech piece at the end. I think okay. that's that's the bells and the whistles that I liked and I enjoyed, and they're good. But I think the core is its core, and that is my choice to finish it. Nick, you played you played eight games. We really haven't talked about the other seven too much, and for obvious reasons. But when you were playing those other seven, was there a time when you were like playing in what is now the current meta and you're like, man, I really wish I had X, Y, or Z? Was there something else you kind of were thinking about as you were playing? Um, I, I don't try to troubleshoot my list during the tournament because that's just going to keep you unfocused. Like, you're here. It's you worry about the future after today. You know, I, you know what? I want to enter into that. I apologize on it because I feel that is the after tournament talk when we're talking right now and we're trying to get better and better uh mental states especially in an eight game tournament do i think it's super negative and really counterproductive to question your list during uh the tournament a hundred percent like what nick was saying i just want to reiterate that because like don't even if you lose the game it's really easy to spiral what could i have done differently if i've lost the game you're already at the tournament doesn't matter what you could have changed uh list wise Learn from your mistakes and analyze your game. But I really, even after my game with loss, like my buddy Jack, who's going to come on this podcast as well, he was like, so tell me about the game. What happened? And honestly, like I gave him the quick 30-second spark notes, but I was in no position to be reflecting on that game. I was like, dude, out of sight, out of mind until after the tournament. 
talk to me on Monday and I will give you a full book report on this game. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to blame all my losses on is I was thinking about my list too much, you know, in mid, mid-tournament. No, but it's, it's a real thing. And I, I want to, I actually want to go on this because I like to fill Jackson a lot of my stuff because I think that the mental aspect of 40K is often hugely overlooked and things of that nature, thinking about that loss, what I could have done and stuff like that, that is literally for later. That is for after the tournament. That You can talk about your, your fun and what happened you know, while we're eating dinner and stuff, but questioning your list isn't what you should be doing at the tournament at all. You should be, you could think about how I can revise my game plan to be a little bit better with my current existing list, but you can't look at re- revisions or I could have, should have, put in my list you can could have should have what can i do with my gameplay in the tournament but i think it's a big deal to not think about that uh when you're just sitting there with that because it can lead to uh literally more loss i see tons i've tons of players elite uh players included that get caught up in i lost this match and then they're they just can't recover from it because they're so upset about losing that game uh when they should have just been uh, focusing on what the next mission is, how I should deploy, what am I going to be playing, and stuff like that. Just to beat the dead horse a little bit more and, and get some two cents here. One thing I find, and I've done it myself, is once you do that, once you fall victim to to amending your list in the middle of a tournament in your brain, being like, okay, I lost round three, but I could have done this, this, and this with my list, or just made this one little tweak and I would have won. In your brain, what happens is you've now made that tweak. You've already written the next version of your list that has that. Then the next three games of the tournament, four games of the tournament, two games, whatever it is you have to play, you're no longer invested. Because like, well, this list that I'm here with is my old list. It doesn't even matter. Like, these results are irrelevant. And you're not going to put your best foot forward. You're not going to try because in your brain, you've already moved on. And you can't do that yet. You yeah, all of the above. I, yeah, so much. I mean, that was a great pickup on that just because I think that if anybody, if you pick anything up from listening to the podcast this, this week, uh, it is... Literally, you have to stay in the present, learn from your mistakes on a hundred percent, but you really, really have to stay in the moment during the tournament. I'm sitting here, I was listening to you and Nick talk, and I'm like, oh man, oh man, this is me. I'm thinking about that Georgia tournament I went to like three months ago. I was like, man, I changed my list mid mid event, and I just like spiraled. So, well, 100%. Nick and I are both saying this though, but it's not like we both haven't done this multiple times in the past. You just oh, learn, I'm a from, yeah, we've <laughs> all too. done it. Yeah, I mean, we just—it's just something that you realize over the course of time that, man, every time I do this behavior, I get a negative result. So I have to change this behavior. Let me rephrase my original question, then, Nick. After you sat there and you're thinking about, you know, the games you played in the other seven games, were there things you recapped on and thought, man, like that would be a cool thing to try out in a future event? Yeah, actually, it was super interesting. So I played against Death Guard in round seven. And Death Guard was an army that I have played myself, and I'm pretty experienced and know their ins and outs. And is this guy, Mark Asher, Asher, I think his name is. Sorry if I butchered that, Mark. Um, he played John Lennon, who's also running this list point for point that I'm running. And he played him in like round five or something. And we looked, we nodded John and I played the Death Guard versus Dark Elder matchup. We talked about it, we thought about it, and we came to the conclusion. The Death Guard is boned. Um, so John plays this guy, round five. Both of us are undefeated at this point. And John is having a tough game and barely wins. 
And I'm like, John, how the hell did you barely win this game? We like we talked about it. You should be good. He's like, I don't know, man. I like I couldn't kill stuff. It was really hard. Death rounds are brutal. It was just a tough game. I, I barely got it, but I got it. And we kind of moved on. Uh, you know, sometimes you do just have games that are unexpectedly hard because life happens. Um, the guy's good. Maybe dice weren't great for John. He got through it. Then I played the same dude, Mark, in round seven after I took my loss to, ironically, the other Mark. Um, and I, I saw, I was like, wow, Death Guard are really hard. My game with this, this new Mark, the Death Guard Mark, um, actually came down to the final die rolls. I barely won. It was like 72 to 65 or something like that. Um, so win's a win, same way John's win is a win. But it really got me thinking, like, maybe there's something to Death Guard versus Dark Eldar. And that sent me on, I've, I've since been on many Chaos Spirals where I've written tons of Death Guard or Chaos Suplice designed to handle Dark Eldar and not suck for the rest of the field. And here we are. <laughs> I, I do want to say I played Mark at Clutch City and he's a super cool opponent. Oh, great, great player. Yeah, yeah, he is very good. But what, what were your what were your kind of tech pieces? Was there anything you were actually thinking like, man, like if I'd had this, like it would be good versus I think the Death biggest Guard thing- or... Is Hellions my choice to not run Hellions? Because every Dark Eldar player you'll talk to is like Hellions. Um, indeed, I will. <laughs> Brad has two of them. I two I big have, units. I have them, I believe. Two tens. <laughs> Brad's got two tens. Or other Art of War coach Matt Morisoli's got a unit of twenty. Like clearly, I'm the crazy one here, right? Um, there are games I play where, and I, I kind of do this, especially during the playtesting process. Not so much during the tournament. Um, and I look at it and I'm like, okay, I am playing this version with my slits and ergos. I'm trying this variable, like my trueborn. This is the new thing I'm trying today. Instead of the trueborn, I could have had Hellions. Instead of slits and ergo, I could have had Hellions, or I could have these Reavers, or whatever the thing I didn't quite make the cut, but could have made the cut. What is that idea? And I look at that game and I try to analyze, like, how would, like, obviously it's not just you know, replace the Swiss with Hellions and play the same game of 40k. The fact that I have Hellions means my opponent acts differently, means I act differently, I have different tools, very convoluted stuff here. But try to theorize, like, what is the game with me having Hellions instead of Slits and Urgles look like? Do I not take While We Stand because my Hellions are always stands and that's terrible? Do I take While We Stand anyway and it just, you know, Hellions are worse at it than Slits? What am I, how does the game flow? Do I use Eviscerating Flyby to obliterate a character? like the Foul Blight spawn, to make my charges a lot easier into the Death Guard army. These are all real considerations. So that's how I look at evaluating the choices. Um, I, have a, I have a theory on Hellions and that they don't help the hard games. They are a win-more thing because, in my opinion, a lot of the hard games are when you're getting blown up turn one because there's a lack of terrain where they have ample and direct fire. Uh, if there's a lack of terrain, it almost doesn't really matter what you take, but Hellions die way faster than Raiders and Slits, so not Hellions. You know, that doesn't help. And then if there's um, ample indirect fire, like Sean's Night Spinners or Mark's uh, Scorpius, for example, or Plague Crawlers from the other Mark's Death Guard, all of those things are, are blast weapons with mass damage too. That's terrible for Hellions. It's like the worst thing ever for Hellions. So do I reserve my Hellions? Maybe. That feels bad. I don't know. But that's kind of how I evaluate the choices. So similarly, I'm talking about this five-man, three-to-five-man reaver unit to help me go run up and touch stuff, right? So I can not lose like that. Well, 
where do the points for that come from? A couple places come to mind, and I think where they will come from is like the Mandrakes. And I know Brad loves his Mandrakes, but just hear me out, Bradley. Um, I, I was just like, wait, one thing I, what's I, he going to say about my poor just, Mandrakes? <laughs> just, I, the Mandrakes, this, this is me overreacting. Um, I, I have like a, I don't know what it is, but some, some disconnect in my brain. Maybe it's like, don't know how to use Mandrakes. Like, I know the principles. I understand the unit. I, it all makes sense to me on paper. Brad and I can talk about Mandrakes for half an hour. But uh, when it comes time to me using the Mandrakes, I didn't put them online against Mark Sabnak. I put them in the corner to raise a banner. And I've consistently made the kind of wrong choice with the Mandrakes. I don't know why, but there's something that happens to me. And a lot of times, I just end up using my Mandrakes to uh, move block or stop my opponent from raising a banner or get a scrambler or get a turn one domination like in that retrieval mission we talked about. You know what could do all of those things, save for the scrambler? A unit of, of uh, five... Reavers. And the thing is, you know, I like that though, where you're going with this, Nick, because I love the fact that you're, you're straight, you're, you're saying that just because a unit has value for a lot of people or is you're told it has value doesn't mean that it has to be the unit for you. You know what I mean? It doesn't have, just because it's popular, doesn't, maybe it doesn't fit into your play style. You know what I mean? Maybe you think that Avani you're you're not going to bring the exact same list as me every time. You know what I mean? So I think that's huge on that is just going, hey, play your game, you know? For sure. Ideally, ideally, what are the Mandrakes wanting to do to you for people out there listening? Like, what in, in your ideal scenario, what is a Mandrake going to like? Because I'm such a big Mandrake lover, I'll just go ahead and answer it. Uh, I love... <laughs> uh, I don't... I use them for anti-alpha strike and anti-scout move and stuff like that. I'm trying to harass my opponent uh, by basically, I want insurance that they're not going to do something crazy to me on turn one. They're not going to move up super hard on me with scout moves. They're not going to, you know, master of ambush me. They're not going to pregame move right up on top of me uh, if I'm going second, especially when I'm looking at uh, scenarios like Dawn of War deployments. Uh, that that's what they do. If Mandrake's super do efficient people, screen, yeah. If they just if they do nothing else in the game, uh, besides do that, hundred percent, I'm okay with that. And the other thing is, is that if you do go first, uh, you you stop your opponent from doing that, and then they have the ability to just go back into deep strike for free. Yeah, the way I look at Mandrake's, they're a really good utility piece. That's also an insurance policy. You're you're buying insurance so you don't go second against like Raven Guard and just die. Um, that's important, but also who's playing Raven Guard these days? Um, right, but I'm just saying it's it's it is that is kind of a thought. Right. Yeah, yeah. no, do you, do you buy insurance or not? I don't know if my house is going to flood, but maybe if I'm going to have we, we've always disagreed. But the thing is, is that we've always disagreed on that because I've always made the safer plays, and you try to make the uh, the more probably point efficient play as far as when you're talking about that particular yeah. like i'm more likely to use to get better use of these points but if i don't and you need your mandrakes it's going to feel great that you have mandrakes right um that's a low blow though the the house flooding you know this um living it living a flood zone you just completely forget yep um but no I, I see your point though i feel like uh with everything you're talking about with the reavers they could be a sub for almost that same role because they're like three of them are similar in cost a unit of mandrakes and they can do a lot more almost for you and well, different, but you know, they, they can do a lot of different things. That yeah, but it, is, it is similar cost. I like the way you put it up though. You know what I mean? You got to figure that it's, you're looking within, you know, a, a teen points, you know what I mean? Of those going on. So you're looking at a, a different battlefield role, but something that Nick looked at in his army and said, maybe I have a little deficiency. What can I do to correct that? And that's the whole reason that we're talking about this is, yeah. 
What can we do to improve so that I have the tools for next time, not during the tournament, but next time, you know, I, he goes to a, you know, bigger tournament, we go to Atlantic city, we go to whatever, you know, maybe that's going to be the difference though. Cause maybe those river jet bikes could have grabbed those disintegrators, you know, round one or two or, you know, turn one or two and your opponent sure as hell doesn't want to have to take resources to kill those couple bikes as opposed to shooting downfield, which is what he wants to do. And it's also, so when the Mandrakes, and not to get this lost in Mandrakes versus Reavers, this is just showing you guys how to think about um, different things you can do with your own armies, but the Mandrakes are an insurance policy first and foremost, and when they're not doing that and dying turn one, they by scouting up and blocking all your infiltrates, they are... Uh, they're just an unit of infantry that I just use as utility for contesting objectives, screening, domination, whatever it might be. So the way I'm replacing utility with utility, I'm getting utility out of the bikes, just losing the insurance policy. So you can look at your own armies that way. And what does my unit actually do? What do five intercessors do for me? Five intercessors hit stuff, they shoot stuff, they screen, they backfield objective hold, they front field objective hold, they do all this different stuff. Um, Maybe there's something else I can replace those interstitials with that is more specialized, but can also double up on the random role of I'm doing stuff, whatever role that is. Which which goes into a big deal when you're looking at your army, knowing what the battlefield role of all your units is. You should be able to say, I have unit X in because it does these four things. You know, it takes ground, it takes objectives, it performs as secondary, and then if you can now look what Nick's doing right now is he's then looking at what are the other things that perform the same battlefield roles as that unit. And then you can start swapping in and out because maybe there's other units that can do the exact same thing. So then in your play test games, you can put in bikes and another different unit, you know what I mean? And just kind of play with that uh, without changing huge portions of your army. We talked about uh, a little bit in part one and part two, the core of, of Nick's army what he doesn't want to change. You know what I mean? So I think it's such a big deal to have the core concept of your army. And then you change just a few variables all the time to try to get it better, to make it more efficient for the next tournament. I think it's also what you said uh, to the core concept. We, we touched on what I view as the core concept as the, the witch detachment, the rack detachment and raiders. I didn't say incubi. Like I've actually thought about cutting all my incubi because honestly, my dark Eldar don't need to hit stuff harder. Don't get me wrong. Maybe part of why they don't need to hit stuff harder is because I have Incubi hitting you and that feels really good. But in the <laughs> games I've played, the Incubi almost feel redundant. Like, yeah, they're awesome. Stats are great. They're in everyone's dark color list. Don't get me wrong. But because I have just so many units, so much sex, so much utility, I'm not really tabling my opponent in most games. I can if they get disrespectful. I'm still playing Dark Eldar. But a lot of times I'm limping to the finish line with six models left and 100 points on the scoreboard. So... Do Incubi fit that style? Yes, no, maybe, sort of. Like, can I do other stuff that fit that style more? That's a tough question because they do punch up really well at 80 points for five. So it's, it's, it is a difficult concept. I actually have thought about that myself because I also run three units of five. So I often think about if I drop one and like, could I get something faster that could possibly do something like you're talking about with bikes? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But that's another thing is, is that I love coming out. I, I mean, I hate coming off a loss, but. Coming off a tournament with, a, you know, when you thought about it, just tournament in general, you should leave every tournament, win, loss, whatever, with ideas that you need to test. But the key is test those ideas, talk through those ideas, talk to your coach, talk, you know, put them on the field itself and go over the, the basically the pros and cons of it. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times something sounds very, very good against 
that one tough match that you had, but it actually weakens your army every other way. And then you have to start making decisions on whether this is good against the whole field or whether you just feel bad about losing that one game, which is one thing that we have to watch. That'd be what, like uh, 12 bikes for like uh, three units of five incubi or something, right? That'd be the trade you'd be looking at there, something roughly. I mean, I probably wouldn't look at that trade, to be honest, because now we're just swapping one one tool, which I will now be missing, which is having something that can punch up um, and be skirmishy in MSU for 12 bikes and, and like one unit is like... A large Death Star. It's apples and oranges at that point. If I replace like three units of five incubi with like two units of five bikes or three units of three bikes, right. something like that, still apples and oranges. It's still similar because it's like three units for three units or three units for two units. But, you know, bikes don't slap stuff like incubi slap stuff. They move. Do you need three more units that move or do you want some combination of some incubi and some movement? I think that balanced approach where you get a little bit of everything typically is better unless you're actively trying to make some absurd skew list. Which I can't, I, I was going to say, we, we, we all know how I feel about that. <laughs> I don't want to go too skew on anything. You always have to have tools. Well, that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's more for like the Art of War regular podcast, which right. is uh, John Damaris' show, but um You'll we'll get all these top players. We'll interview about their list theories and stuff. And some people will be spamming twenty four beasts and Urgle or like twelve planes or something. But the vast majority of the people who we get on that win GTs are bringing balanced armies and playing them well. And that's all, all right. it is. I think that it comes down to the last few hundred points, Nick. Like we're here talking about right now, just making tweaks. And I think that that's a big deal. Again, uh, it's it sucks. It always sucks to lose a game, guys. But you learn so much from that because I felt like you. You basically got a, a whole new place, placing not even just play style, but just game plan playing against Admac now. And you have like so many more ways to win because you lost that game. I actually think that you'll be stronger throughout the year uh, because you, you know what I mean? Uh, because you lost that game. I think that if you would have uh, went first and high rolled him, you know what I mean? You would have actually been less prepared for the rest of 2021. Well, that's essentially what happened with my game with Siegs. Um, you know, like I played Siegs in that Streamhouse RTT game, however much you want to count that. Um, and that was my only practice versus Admech, and it left me weak, I would say, into Admech. Like my my mental preparation, my homework into Admech, all of it was was relatively underprepared. And it showed when I went to play Mark, who's an excellent Admech player, knows the match really well, and he just, you know, put me into the ground. So... Definitely had I could have won that game. I could have gone first. I could have should have would have this that whatever, and then I win that game. Well, now I go to my next tournament, ACO, and I still have two false wins versus Admech, and I'm just asking for Joe Schmo, the Admech player, to put me in my place because I don't actually understand what's happening. Hundred yeah. percent. I believe that so much, and that's what I'm saying. No one wants to lose the game, but I think that you just you should. It, that this is the difference between. Uh, basically going up the ladder, learning more, being elite, is you should get the most out of every loss. I feel like I learn so much more from a loss than I do from a win. Um, I don't want to lose, but it's still just such a big deal to get those get those uh, those lessons, basically, from that. So I think it makes you just stronger, and you have to go forward. And this is why I was so, again, why I was excited to do this podcast, because we talk about what you've learned moving forward, and I feel like just talking through it, like you're on a different level going next to next to the time you play the admin. Definitely. I, I think there's losses sticking your mind more because uh, you, you want to improve upon your losses. 
And obviously, if I lost, and you know, every good player ever tells me not to blame dice, let me look inward to figure out where and how I lost. But there's so much you can glean from your wins as well. Um, that's not what the premise of the show is. We're going to find people who lost and talk to them. But I, I won that game from Siegs, and I had a lot of stuff I could have learned. I could have been. I could have looked at it with a skeptical mind, realized vital intelligence actually carried my ass to victory, realized having terrain in the center of the board that blocked line of sight for the angles really dictated the way that game was played. How different is it stress tested if I don't have those variables? Do multiple test games. Don't just assume one and done. Like Sometimes one and done is enough if it's that much of a blowout or if, it's, if you're that confident in the match. But then you know something like Admech, the first time I was going into it, I was really shaky, really unsure. Naturally, Admech countered Jukari, played it versus Siegs, got a false positive, essentially, and just was like, oh, good news is good news. Let me, uh, let me ride that out. And it bit me in the ass at Dallas. So really do just approach 40K with a skeptical mind. Just, and then there's always room for improvement. Have that mindset. There's always something you can do better. I feel like that was a beautiful monologue to close out this episode because it is just summarized. I feel like you just summarized everything the show is about, everything we're wanting to do moving forward. And Nick, do you have any any other thoughts? Anything you would want to say to anyone out there about your uh, about your game? No, I mean, I, I could real maybe I will write a book one day on how to improve from your losses. But uh, I, I think this is really a skill set that truly is what separates the the Mees and the Brad Chesters and the Richard Siegler's of the world with the guys you may or may not have heard of who also top everything or come close to topping everything, but don't make it. And that's because when, when we have a really rough loss, we, we fixate over it. We, we like analyze the crap out of it. We, like I'm, I'm exploring Reaver jet bikes over here to solve the ADMEC problem. Like This is the critical thinking you need to be doing to actually solve your problem so you don't make the same mistake twice. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Nick. And Brad, thank you for co-hosting with me today. And I'm sure we'll have many an episode moving forward. If you want to, Go ahead and jump on over to the Art of War website. Check out the Art of War War Room. Check out our merchandise there. Check out the other podcasts. We have the Art of War. We have the Art of War Down Under. We also have this tons of services available on their coaching services. This fantastic uh, ways to improve your game. So jump on over there. Check it out. And join us next week when we talk again to another top-level player about a top loss that they had. Thanks for listening. Later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. 